Welcome to the Future of Photovoltaics podcast. We are already on our seventh episode, getting immense interest from our colleagues in the industry. Today, I'm very excited to have Mr. Brett Baber, head of O&M at B-Electric UK, join us. Brett, welcome. Hi, hi thanks for having me. I want to talk a bit about how we first met, I think, because it, it, was, it was a strange time. There was a, There's a lot of bad things about the lockdown and the COVID pandemic, but uh, not many people talk about the good things. And I think meeting you uh, uh, were one of the good things of that period. You know, uh, you know, we, we rebuilt our businesses after Brexit and, you know, things started going immensely well for us. And then March 2020, we get told by Boris we're going into lockdown, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we start this whole virtual reality world of working. And then... Um, all the things changed with our existing customers. You know, first, uh, I remember walking around Bank in London and feeling like uh, the Will Smith movie, I Am Legend, because there was not a single person there. You know, the good thing was there was no traffic. So I met uh, one of your former colleagues, uh, Mr. Liam Hicks and uh, Mr. Dayton Eldridge. You know, you could get offices for 10 quid an hour <laughs> because there was nobody in them. Yeah. And and so, um, and then after the, the initial meeting with Des. We agreed to meet at uh, Gridserve Braintree Electric Forecourt uh, because, you know, we, we we had to do social distance meetings and, yeah. you know, things kept changing so often. And I remember you turning up in, in a nice uh, MG, YMG to charge yeah. in Braintree. And, and that's how we were first meeting. That's it, um, yeah. I mean, it just about made it from my house. I mean, I had about 140 mile range on that thing. But um, yeah, it, was a, it, was a, it was a decent car apart from the range. But yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting time, wasn't it? It was certainly, and uh, it's already been four years, how, how time flies. Crazy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I want to talk a bit about you as a person before we get into discussing the future of photovoltaics, oh, specific yeah. technical details, you know, because people is what make this industry fun to be in. And, and in terms of how you got to where you are, your early career challenges growing up, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a probably a pretty normal life to, to, to most people. Um, a working class family in in Norfolk. Um, my I had uh, two older brothers and, and an older sister. Um, I was the youngest of the family by by some margin. Uh, my sister being almost ten years older than me. Um, both my brothers quite early um, joined joined the army straight from school at sixteen. Um, so it was imprinted on me pretty early in life that uh, I didn't want to be the you know the brother in that family who didn't join the army so so quite early i designed already decided that i was going to join the army um so i kind of i kind of switched off a bit if i'm honest with you i you know at school i i was never massively taken in by 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 lessons and academically i i just I, I did struggle if i'm honest with you and um and i switched off and i just had it in my head i was going to join the army um and then at 16, I'd done that. I, I, I managed to just scrape in and, and get into to a junior apprenticeship scheme. Um, and that's really where my life started to change a bit. Um, it, it, you definitely find in the military that you have to comply. You have to try your hardest. There is no there is no second second efforts at things. Um, and if you, you are that type of person, you didn't last in the military very long. Um, so I think it, it, the military definitely um, crafted my my management skill to a certain degree because you're obviously in in situations and times doing you know working with with people and you need to know that they're 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 pretty robust around you as well so it led to some interesting times <coughs> um i ended up uh, going across to bosnia uh in, in a place called banja luka where i was based for six months 
um, looking after radios um, and basically and the communications equipment. Um, uh, yeah, six months of, of of real soldiers running about doing work while I was uh, based getting a suntan, drinking coke in the back of a, a Range Rover. So uh, yeah, it wasn't all bad in the military for me. I had I had pretty easy time, but um, I just found that for me, um, I always had a bit more drive, and the military I felt kind of stifled me. If I'm honest with you, I, I kind of you know there's, there's a certain amount of time served with with ranks in the military and and stuff, and I found it really hard to sit there for a long time and kind of it felt a bit stale so after six years i kind of decided to leave take my resettlement done some management further management training and then um yeah i found myself working into the, the agricultural industry really so this is a massive uh, transition from struggling in school to uh joining the army at what point did you think i, sh- I, sh- I should join the army i'm not not good at school you obviously are very well spoken so i wouldn't I- know that you struggle at school I think so something happened quite early in my life um where i, was, I remember being it's going to rewind really back i remember being a real type probably 10 at school and uh we were listening to this show and uh the teacher said afterwards we want everyone in the, in the class to write a letter and we're going to send it to this dj and hopefully we'll all get a reply mm-hmm. and at the end of the lesson the teacher held me aside and went um we have a certain standard in school so we're not going to send your letter off and I remember that really resonating with me that I just wasn't good enough. So I think I kind of carried that through for a long time until I hit the military and I actually realized that if I was taught stuff in the right way and I was explained stuff properly, uh, actually I wasn't stupid. I was actually, I was actually quite intelligent. Uh, uh, and and that, that really gave me the confidence to believe in myself a bit more. So school's not for everyone. It certainly didn't work for me. Um, and, I, and I strongly believe in academics. I really do. But um, it just, it failed me in my early years. Um, so, yeah, so I think thankfully for the military, it kind of it did stick me and stand me on my feet and kind of make me who I am today to, to, to a lot. There's still a lot of things now, 25 you know, years after leaving the army that are still with me and they, I still do to this day. Did you ever get involved in combat or any any confrontational <laughs> situations? Uh, what, I, I why, mean, what, why were you deployed to Bosnia? What was going on and when was that? So, I mean, at the time I was quite young. Uh, I was 18. So the, the conflict there was the Serbian-Croatian conflict. So mm-hmm. uh, we were sent as a stabilization force. The idea was we were to act as, as police, uh, re-infrastructure, rebuild. It was that kind. So it was after the first wave. Um, so for me, I mean, uh, I, I've, I've been really lucky in terms of my military career. Um, you know, I, I've been to, to conflict areas. I've never been involved in any direct action. Um, like I said, the real soldiers are out there carrying the guns. I was I was sat there just building up my son's hand. So the kudos goes to the real soldiers. I, I, I wasn't certainly one of them. I just uh, I definitely use it as a career stepping stone. And uh, we, we obviously, to tempt people out of their bubbles, uh during the lockdown uh, easing, we we ran this social networking drinks thing in in London just to see people again. And and I remember yeah. you mentioned before you carried a rifle, right? Yeah, I mean I had one. <laughs> I mean, God forbid I have to shoot the bloody thing, but yeah, no, um, yeah, no, definitely. I was, you know, I, I was a soldier the other day. I was I was weapons trained and stuff, and and yeah, believe it or not, I used to drive around in tanks and stuff. Um, yeah, it, it all feels quite surreal now to 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 think about it, but uh, it all felt like a really long holiday. If I'm honest with you. 
it's a big thing because you you were trusted to carry a rifle, a gun, and and you yeah. didn't do anything silly. And no, never never squeeze t- a trigger once in, in in anything but a range. So you know. yeah, exactly. So you can be trusted with with sensitive uh, equipment. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then. And then, and then uh, you uh, mentioned that you, you you became an engineer or got a technical NVQ level three. Do you want to tell us about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, how? I mean, I don't even know to this day how I, I managed to blag it. If I'm honest with you, um, you know, we, we it was part of the the phase in the the, the army where uh, it was coming out of the 80s and 90s where they really didn't leave soldiers with anything. You know, you just done your time in the army and left. So they they really done this whole reboot phase with NVQs. So what, what I don't really remember doing a lot of the actual course. I remember the assessors turning up, doing a lot of interviewing. We'd do some tests back and forth. And yeah, like I said, I'd end up leaving with a, an MVP level three um, without even touching anything outside of a, you know, a radio with 12 amps on it kind of thing. So, you know, it, it, it's dangerous when you think of it, I suppose. So I left with the, the, the theory and, and, and not the practical, really. Uh, but no, it, it, it was good. But then, like I said, it, it, that, that, that experience has still helped me in even in agricultural career and you know and stuff like that so it was all it was all you know building blocks to where where i've got to now what do what do you mean by agricultural career did you work as a farmer i wasn't a farmer i am um, my father had worked in in milling agricultural milling right. pretty much his whole life uh, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. when i left the army and i'd done a bit of management training uh, i ended up working with my father which again an amazing experience to to see a man who was who was this disciplinary figure as a child suddenly be a a normal person who goes to work um so yeah i went to work with him um and looked after a small team of, of, of uh, milling guys and engineers uh, and the maintenance team responsible for scheduling it was my first real kind of job outside the army where you know i had a small team and it was a you know electrically based to a certain degree where i had to have some understanding but i didn't really have to be the expert um but it was more about the same same as within the solar industry really it was about you know managing expectations of, of your contract um to make sure you deliver all, all the the feed and all the milling requirements we had so yeah it's not quite the rock and roll lifestyle we live in solar vicar you know what i mean so but um yeah it was um again it, it was something that it was is essential in my life in, in in learning management especially coming out of the military where you ask someone to do something in the military they just do it so one of the the hardest things I certainly had to learn um, in my first kind of roles is that um, if you ask someone to do something, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do it. Uh, and that was, that was, to me, it was mind boggling because I just, you know, from school, I've always had that mindset that just, you know, if asked to do it, kind of get on with it a certain degree. Obviously, there's assessment of, you know, health and safety and, and, and there's nothing against that. But, but yeah, it was my first real experience of actually, you actually have to manage people and it, it's not just a, a dictatorship. Um, and, and and that hurt me. So I, my my I don't mind me. My first kind of manager role, I was pretty heavy for the first six months until I realised that you don't really get anything out of anyone that way. So um, I, it was quite it was quite integral in making sure that I understand that you know work is a necessity for most people and nearly all of us. Um, mm. And actually, you, you you get the best out of people by by kind of making sure their life balance and, and work is, is is all in harmony really so and that's quite hard with with shift workers and stuff like that in agriculture there's always there's always issues for everyone so running a 24-hour shift um, seven days a week is is tough for a lot of people like that so it was a challenge um, and, I, and I've done that for a lot of years really speaking of work um, 
How, how did your military service shape your approach to your profession and career? Specifically, you know, we work in an electrical industry, in the power industry. What I'm most interested in about is, you know, your NVQ level three. Was uh, Did that allow you to become an electrical engineer or a technician? Are you able to give us some context on that at all? I mean, not not in my early stages. No, I mean, when when, when I, um, like I say, when I first left, I, I went pretty much into to management and, and, and there was there was electrical works to do but you know it was the same as is something i didn't need to be an electrician although i had the the the, the mvq level three my first real taster was was really when i joined renewables um, mm-hmm. and that's the first time that qualification really really helped me i went in um uh, to light source as a, mm-hmm. as a junior engineer uh, i remember <clears throat> going in quite early 2013 um i i, I went to london and, and met up with the management team there i explained that you know, I've been in the army. Practically had all, all this theory training, but never really put it to, to pieces. And they they had the the confidence really in in me to to give me a job really and and allow me to learn those practical skills on site. Um, and yeah, and build up. So that was my that was my first experience into to using my my qualification from from the army. Really, before that, it all been just just management. Really, just that I just naturally fought from the military. That's where I was going. So I never thought I would take a, a, a you know a change in a career um certainly at that age of my life really i thought i was just going to stay in the agricultural industry forever yeah and then suddenly this opportunity and i, and I really felt the time in my life where i, I wanted to change you know had, had young children and all that as well so you know you, you, you start looking at, at the financials of, of staying in agriculture or or moving across into a new industry so yeah i took that leap and and, and that definitely uh, definitely was the main reason you know I managed to to get into light source and at an early stage at a stage when again it was the part of the first boom so it was just growing so quickly um I mean I don't even know how many megawatts they had when, when I first was joined that? when when light source are very important because mm-hmm. uh, many of our early EBC clients such as Source Entry and Oscar Mira were working for Light Source yeah. in the peak feed and tariff time. So, what year did you join Light Source? And uh, so, I joined in 2013, I believe it was 2013. Oh, okay. oh. Yeah, I want to say uh, it was early on. I wanna, it yeah. was either you know spring mm-hmm. or summer kind of thing. But yeah, so I joined them at a stage mm-hmm. where they were still still trying to get engineers through the doors. So there was we had some really good people, and, and one you know not just was, is Light Source a pivotal company because they've essentially created this huge O&M industry um to which which you know it, it is still to this day a, a massive a massive industry and uh, and quite rightfully owned by one of the big fuel companies now because of because of how how big it's grown but um you know in terms of of its importance um the, the people they they managed to get there were quite incredible if I'm honest with you they had some really good engineers who who had been in early days of solar um, and they managed to to get them across to to train everyone up so it was a it was a really good experience for me light source I pinch myself you know and, and we say you know we delivered a lot indirectly to light source transferred a lot of warranties which I remember getting the signatures for and you know I pinch myself and think you know they are owned by BP, British Petroleum. You know, something that yeah. we've done is now belong to the oil and gas industry. You know, yeah. when I first entered renewables, you know, I wasn't necessarily motivated by climate change, but I preferred to do renewables over working in, you know, defense, for example, because it gave me that warm, fuzzy feeling that what we're doing is greening the earth, is giving land breathing space you know and and we are doing something that's clean so i felt less guilty about driving a fossil fuel car because i'm offsetting some 
some of my carbon with all this good solar work that we're doing. But now that they belong to BP, you know, it, it is a bit surreal, but also getting very serious. What motivated you to move into renewables? What was your drive? Was it did you just want any job, or did you have a specific focus? Um, I thought I definitely wanted to do something which meant a bit more. I mean, again, it was no offence against the agriculture industry, but I'd kind of I'd done it for six, seven years, eight years. I can't remember how long I'd done it for a lot of years. And uh, yeah, I just, I really just wanted to change. And at that stage, again, I don't think I thought I want to change the world and become this this massive you know, green advocating kind of man. I, I, I just wanted a change. And mm-hmm. I like the fact that renewables was a new sector. And uh, I'm, always, you know, I'm very aware that when you get into new sectors early, it, it can accelerate your career. And it, you know, that, that, that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to get into it. Um, but mainly it was a change. You know, I, di- I didn't want to continue working working in, in that kind of thing. And I wanted, I wanted just a new challenge, really. Of course, for me, I, I like solar because if you go to the atomic weapons establishment where they make the Trident or Network Rail, they'll have thousands of engineers. There's already established processes. You're just, you are one of the uh, many people there. But with solar, the reason why it attracted me was you can learn from building blocks from the very basics to very complex uh, so that's why you know I've stayed in the industry for so long. But how did your light source period come to an end? You know, and and how did you end up moving to Equitix? Who are Equitix? Well, light source. I think. Like, I mean, one of the things I say uh, about being in the military is that you, like I say, you end up being quite focused to get to an end point or to a certain level. Um, so I think when when you're at light source quite early on and you're you're able to grow. And you're growing quite quickly, and after a few years, you're a bit more in management or, or this way. You kind of you realise there's suddenly a ceiling, and that ceiling is going to slow what I thought was my career path down at the time. Um, rightfully or wrongfully, I decided at that point <coughs> that I'd leave. Um, yeah, and then then I went to uh, to join a business, Equitix, um, who are uh, a, they're a private fund in, um, basically uh, sorry they're a private fund infrastructure and um, <clears throat> they uh, predominantly were doing pension funds um, and uh, doing uh, investment into hospitals and universities those kind of you know long-term paybacks and I think they they just dipped their, their, their foot into renewables and um, I was looking for something different from O&M if I was honest with you or I wanted to, to grow my kind of commercial bias a bit more and learn and, and just learn a bit more and, and and again just just for personal growth really um, and I was lucky enough to end up at Equitix under Ian Davison who used to be at Solar Century um, and to me I think that is where my career really felt like it started um, you know I, I it wasn't nothing to do with, with light source but I, I felt like that was where my career actually started. So Ian spent a lot of time supporting me um, at my time at Equitix. And um, yeah, I've got a, got a lot of time for Ian and I, and I always will have. He, um, he really taught me the commercial bias that I know today. He taught me how to, to understand contracts properly. He understood me all the financial elements that went with asset management. You know, technically, I, you know, I, was, I, was, I was doing engineering, so I understood the, 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 the technical side. But you know, jumping from that ship into into another was 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 a really steep learning curve. And I remember after probably my first year at Equitix, kind of I had a break and I was like, that was that was a tough year. That was hard work. But then at the same vein, I was like, I, I don't want to I don't want to slow down. I really mm-hmm. didn't want to slow down. So 
yeah, and 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 Epsix had faith in me. I, I went from you know being a technical manager to to one of the the, the main general managers looking after their solar and onshore wind portfolios. Um, yeah, a, a really good time for me, and and I would have continued to stay there had we not been hit by COVID, probably. Um, and that's when your mindset starts thinking, and you have time to consider where you want to go in your career, I suppose, and what you want to do. And you want to want to spend more time with family at the time I was commuting into London, you know, most days, you know, so, so yeah, so uh, yeah, Eptic was an, an amazing business. And uh, yeah, I've got, I've got no, no bad words about them at all. They, they really looked after me and mentored me and, and supported me into a job. I really wouldn't have found myself in, in these kind of positions today. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know who said this, and I could probably credit this later on, but uh, I remember thinking, driving all over the place uh, between 2012 and 2015, you know, that uh, sometimes nothing happens for an eternity, and sometimes an eternity happens in a few moments. And it was that kind of period, 2012, 2013, 2014. You had the Olympics 2012. We had London offshore wind farm happening. We had the first uh, massive-scale solar farms. So, uh, you know, people were keeping up with a lot of Changes in feed-in tariffs, uh, anti-dumping duty, and import uh, imposition of minimum import prices. Uh, then new rock schemes. So just to keep up was tough, and, and and but it was a good time, and you have to enjoy the good times. Is is my reflection of the last decade or so. And uh, I remember walking in the rain, in the mud. It was all the solar farms were always built during uh, the worst possible time. Yeah. And I, I remember losing my boots at Cowdown Solar Farm. Uh, <laughs> you know, I believe you had some sort of uh, involvement there, right? Yeah, no, it's one of one of the Cowdown was one of the, the sites under under management. They were they were the, the shareholders there. Site fifty megawatt at the time. It was it was one of the biggest single sites I looked after. Uh, uh, just based outside uh, or just inside Hampshire. Um, I'm trying to think the technology on that now. Um, I don't think it was. I think it might have been Solarmax, but I'm not 100 percent sure. It might have been one of the last Solarmax, or it might have changed something else. I really can't remember what the technology was on it now. But yeah, that was an interesting project just because it was at the time it was considered big. Absolutely. And I work a lot in Switzerland where Solomax were from. I remember, uh, I won't mention all the stories of what we got up to in the evening, but I remember taking Solomax to the factory and then the following morning they were going under, which was, you know, yeah. hard to hard to fathom. Uh, what were your key learnings from Cowden Solar Farm and, and what sort of involvement did you have? I mean, at that stage, my involvement was definitely off tools so I mean, it was more commercial management i mean the process there was predominantly still the fact process so we were in that handover from 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 the actual epc fully to the owner um, you know these these things always always come with their own issues um but yeah i mean that was my, my biggest focus for Cadon is getting a 50 megawatt through the fact process uh, and make sure it's kind of ticked all the boxes and and it is it's a good site it's a successful site and um you know um, they, they have um, they have they have good results from there, and um, yeah, it's in a good location as well. So um, yeah, you've said something very important. Then uh, a few people of Jyoti Arnold have mentioned this on previous podcasts. The fact process for people that are young and new and and that are just entering the industry and and, yeah. and non technical people, you know, FAC is final acceptance certification. Yep. How did you come across this process? Did you develop it yourself? Did you gain this from suppliers or partners? 
No, I mean, this was something inherited by, so by the time I was working on, on the process, it was already well in place. In place. Um, and I think, I'm not sure where, where the first one's come from, but it, essentially it's a it's a, a two-year handover from, from the UPC uh, into the asset owners. It just means that they can have a site generating work and they may have some teething problems. They may have some planning issues they still need to resolve and they get a bit of time to do that um, and you have a, an intermediate certificate as well so they agree to hit a certain level by the end of that year um, so that the process is is a bit laborious because it, it's basically checking checking through works and stuff like that but it, it is fundamental to to making sure that you know what was agreed is in place on solar farms so it works it's yeah like i say it is a heavy heavy process because there's so many you know one, one of the the best comparisons i've ever had with, with working on wind and solar was when a guy went out yeah. So there's no parts. I'm like, agreed. Yeah. So yes, you know, they are very different to manage. Uh so yeah, so like it, it, it it's it's a process that we're we're bound to be seeing back again soon. We've got the new phases of build going on in the UK now and, and without a doubt that they will be a, a fact process, if not slightly renamed to something different, it will still be the same process. It it's that that allowance of time to complete the project to its fullness. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't always work. Sometimes that the EPC goes, you know, we have some issues with this. We're not going to be able to complete this. Here is here is a set amount of money to to offset that we didn't finish that work. And then it becomes a, a bit of an agreement then between between the asset owners and, and, and the, the EPCs to, to how they'll manage that financially, really. But it tends to end on pretty amicably, I must admit. They're not not everyone, but you know, in general terms, it, you know, the contract is fulfilled through that process. So I hope I'll that clears a, up. <laughs> absolutely, I run a small business called Ventus. You know, we are agents in the UK for a massive cable factory with 400 employees. They used to belong to a PLC called Leone in the past, and you know, the name Ventus means wind in Latin. You know, I wanted to look for something renewables when I registered the company. It became available. I was trying to work on offshore wind farms. And, and it's interesting you make the comparison between moving and non-moving parts. And there are a lot of moving parts. There's salt water and wind. But the reason why I, I kind of gave up on wind and jumped full headfirst into solar is because in wind, the OEMs do the certification. You know, like Vestas or Siemens, they've got everything type tested in a dry environment. The wind turbines arrive and you have to assemble. With solar, we are integrating the system as we go. And 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 you said something very important about the fact the final acceptance certification process and the reason why it's so vital is because the industry's been a boom and bust solar coaster. You've had people who are highly technical, highly experienced, been there for twenty, thirty years. Some people were academics in this area as well, and and suddenly they've disappeared or decided they don't want to do EPC anymore or they've been taken over and now they want to go back to being developers. But there, there are now there is now a situation where there's a shortage of EPCs in the market and. But development has been very, very immense because after Brexit, the construction started to slow down and development is less capex intensive. So there's a huge amount of developers who are now starting to go into build and, and, and for them it's completely new. You know, what is the fact process? Where do you start? How do you uh, keep a control on quality? So what you said is very, very vital because, you know, people that work in O&M sometimes don't see how how intense the work environment was you know the, with the politics with the feed-in tariff you know either you're twiddling your thumbs doing nothing and suddenly you've got 300 megawatts to build and there's not enough hours in the day 
and, and a certain date as well you know i remember that mad march it, mm-hmm. absolutely crazy wasn't it at the end of the end of you gotta gotta have it connected and, and generating before you can get the fit tariff or the rock payments whatever and uh it was it was a really heck i remember never booking any holiday you know between march and april well i've worked through my holidays because you know the money was too good to say no to you know <laughs> i still still i've said this before you know i received a letter of uh, witnessed by xi jinping and David Cameron, I was like, I said, Mrs. Cancel the holiday. We need to do this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, um, uh, so yeah, is a prime example. You know, it's a massive project, but it was yeah. one of several projects happening at the same time. Great, yeah. and, and when you look that, look at some of the research online that, that we need to do something crazy like seventy-five terawatts of solar by twenty fifty, and the, the whole world's in one terawatt. You know, even though the numbers were massive. They are not even a decimal point. You know, I think we're doing like less than 1% of our energy. The UK 10 years ago used to use 400 terawatt hours of electricity. Someone mentioned on a foresight blog, you know, now we have 50 terawatt hours. You know, it's it's nothing in, in, in the general scheme of things, but also massive at the same time. Uh, do you want to go a bit more into uh, uh, how you went into lockdown and, and what happened? How did the journey with Equitix come to an end for you? Yeah, I mean, it was it was just circumstantial. So you know, before I, I kind of remember Ian Ian Davidson making a making a comment like, "Oh, this this kind of this disease going around looks like it's getting pretty serious." I can imagine as uh, not being able to come to work, and I was thinking that's ridiculous. There's there's no way the no. government is going to stop the whole country coming to stopping going to work. Yeah. And then yeah, suddenly no one's allowed to travel. The big announcement from Boris, and uh, there we were working from home all the time, and. Um, and it was that flip from having a team around you all the time to being at home all the time and working all the time, and it was it was fine at first. But again, I think that that little that little itch kind of got in the back of my head. And and, it, and I'd had I'd, don't get me wrong, I had a lot of opportunities to leave Equitix within that time um, to go somewhere else. But I really was happy there. Um, but it did change when I when 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 I started working from home. You know the you ended up working extra hours, longer hours, not because of the company, just because you're at home and you feel like you need to do more hours. And ju- and I just felt that then become a bit, kind of a bit the norm. And, and, and I just really wanted to change. And I, and I felt like uh, probably, again, I'd got as much commercial training as I was going to get out of, out of, those, out of Eptics. And, uh, and, and, and I couldn't see us going back to London anytime soon. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest kind of drives for me as I quite enjoyed working in, in the city and, uh, you know, having having a, a really kind of busy job, but when that all came to an end, it just gave you time to reflect. And then, obviously, I started seeing my children more and taking them to clubs, and 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 the reality of oh, actually, I'm not sure I really want to do all those things I thought I enjoyed, like traveling into London because my children are growing up and all those things. You just have a change of mindset. Um, so yeah, so I decided that you know uh, it was time for me to move on. I didn't really know 100 percent what i wanted to do i mean i had a had the o&m experience and i had had asset management experience at that point um and i'd always kind of at that during all that stage i've always been quite vocal in in solar anyway i'd always kind of been at the steering groups and and done talks and stuff so i'd I'd always been been out there so i thought my options were really mine i could kind of go anywhere so um eventually i've yeah i've I found the company of of Liam and Dathan, and 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 they were, you know, probably a year or so into to running Des, and and they asked me, you know, at a time that I, you know, I really needed a change in life, they asked me to come and join them, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a really really nice experience to have uh, two guys actually call you up and say, 
would you come and help us out for a little while? So they, so yeah, so I, I went then went and joined uh, Des uh, doing the big development really and, and commercial management. Before we go on to that, what, what, you know, you'd raise an important point that will resonate with a lot of people with me, uh, at least, which is you, know, you work for this massive uh, financial sort of firm, Equitix, and yeah. Uh, you know, finance is a huge industry. I think something crazy like twenty nine trillion in London. You know, don't quote me in the numbers, but I've read it's huge. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, so you've got this massive opportunity with with this financial uh, sort of developer, investor, etc. And then suddenly you've uh, come to this realization that everyone has that I could spend more time with my kids. Yeah. I could work from home. I don't need to lose you know four hours a day on travel. Yeah. W- would you say would it be right to say it was it was time with family that persuaded you to yeah to not go into London anymore? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, it was. I mean, financially, I took I I took a cut for that, but it was I, I absolutely understood that would be the case. But it, you know, uh, I just felt that I'd missed a lot of you know, tucking my children in or, or seeing them to school. I was getting up early and by the time I got home, they were, they were in bed or, or now going to bed. So yeah, it was, it was really that impact of, of seeing them more, but actually it was just my social, social kind of, you know, it, it built up our relationships. You know, I now spend more time with my children generally because of that whole experience and uh, something that really I'm quite thankful for. And, and, and like you, I, uh, I spend a lot of time running my children around to, golf or, or other piano lessons or other kind of clubs and it's uh it's actually really enjoyable it's more it's more enjoyable than work and you kind of you don't realize that when you're in like you say you're working for a, a really big business you kind of you don't forget about it but it you certainly get blinkered to it uh so when you were suddenly removed from that environment it was just like actually yeah the important things i think is what the the most people's comments were at the time the important things in life became obvious and, and stuff so i never felt like moving house but but yeah i certainly didn't feel like like commuting long hours all the time again so that was that was certainly the focus and that's a big 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 change because uh you know i've worked in lab i worked in honeywell i worked in cable and wireless and there is a huge work culture in the u.s where people work sometimes six or seven days same in china as well <laughs> and you know i've taken a massive pay cut to spend time with the kids who run a football team for my son to play tennis with my daughter and as they're becoming teenagers and need me less i'm kind of glad because they're never going to be young again. You're never going to get this time again. You've got the rest of your life to to make money. But it's important to reflect that this was this was a luxury not available to very many people before the, the COVID. It was only sales reps or very senior managers or very key people that work from home. Or if you were someone that worked in an office, you were expected to be there because, you know, why are you working on your own? So that, that is a huge change. So I won't dwell too much on that, but... What's interesting for me is how you met Liam and how you formed a relationship. Yeah. yeah. So, so I remember I, I met Liam years ago with LightSource. He, he was obviously doing some work for Solar Century at the time. So that's one of my first kind of introductions as a, as a brief, you know, the Solar Century guy there. His name's Liam. So that was my first kind of introduction to them. And then working with Ian Davison, and, and then I got to know that, yeah, both Liam and Dathan were, were worked for him at, at Solar Century. So um, when I naturally left Equitix and I was I was looking for, for businesses to I was doing some consulting and originally I was looking at some other business support. Liam and Dathan was just one of the first people we kind of got in contact with. I can't even remember if Liam rang me first or or I rang him, but I, I certainly needed some some work doing uh, on some solar farms. And um, yeah, it was just me, so I, I thought I'd, I'd reach out to those guys. So that was my first real kind of engagement was them was actually asking them to do some work for me. Um, yeah, and it kind of started from there. Um, yeah 
And you, you mentioned I've got notes here just to have some sort of structure. You know, you 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 join as a bit development manager. You you got promoted to being the managing director. You mentioned there was explosive growth uh, with with uh, yeah. Des. You know, are you able to give uh, paint a bit picture about what you mean by explosive growth and yeah, where it I came think from? We came out of a time where not just the COVID, but like I say, solar had been stale for a couple of years. There, there was no development. Every, every everyone had left, and it was just managing this. So it got very, very slow. Um, and then what happened is suddenly everyone wanted a solar farm built, or everyone needed work catching up on. Um, and, and like we had dynamic energy, like Liam and Dathan, you know, were on the tools. They were out all the time. And it went from from really steady work, and um, and quite frankly, the first year. It's scratching around for some work to it being you know a really solid booked up and in demand business so it was explosive in terms of of you know of workload um then ultimately you have that balance of trying to recruit sustainably because it's a self-funded business you know and and you know you've got to rewind slightly and look at you know this business was funded from Liam and, and, and Dave and just putting some money in the bank and trying to do some work for themselves, right? This is how I don't think they ever expected it to be the business as it is today. And, and that is kudos to, to their, their, their working testament and, and actually recruiting the right people. Um, you know, they went and recruited David Williamson when he left Solar Century, who is just probably the most harding working uh, ops manager I think I've ever met in my life he uh, yeah he just never puts 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 the phone down and he never he never stops working he, he so they went and recruited correctly in him and, and they were able to then build out into you know correct engineers and, and, and the right subcontractors to help them build the business but in explosive in terms of for a, a relatively new business to go from two engineers to to you know an award-winning O&M business today. It's, um, That's, uh, it's that highly was unusual. explosive. I want you know that it's highly most businesses fail, right? So yeah. we've got these uh, action heroes uh, that work for the Soul Century O and M team. They've got a lot on their plate. Yeah. Suddenly we've got COVID and everything, and then they they meet me and saying they want to start their own business. Uh, from and, and I thought, yeah, these are great guys. They come across really senior and, and know what they're talking about. And uh, you know, it wasn't until they hired you and David Williamson, who I've worked with at Solar Century in the past, who was one of the key people because he, whenever you saw his name in, in your inbox, you know you were getting a purchase order, and it was usually be a big one. So yeah. <laughs> when David Williamson suddenly joined Des, you've joined Des as well from Equitix. You start to take your friends a bit more serious but so yeah. for, for, for people that are not part of our media network or, or media industry are you able to tell us what does des stand for what are they as a business and are you able to comment on what's so special about dathan and liam that they can just start a business from nothing in the worst possible time and and yeah. get to as you say explosive growth well, i mean they're crazy right to start a business during that time but um fortune favors the brave i guess is what they say um but look the, i mean it is really testament to to their character that not only are they robust, solid, knowledgeable engineers that that you know they are hardworking, they are committed to sites. They were a bit of a fresh air because if you asked them to go and do something, they would do all those things and more, and send you a report, and and it would just be so timely. They were just very sleek in what they were doing. So um, yeah, so Dynamic Energy Solutions was was born out out, out of those guys um, initially as a as a kind of support partner to, to the industry um i think is how it started um and then when i i, I joined and, and david had joined it was just a matter of trying to get business wherever we could so we started pushing hard into our own 
own rooftop development, um, supporting more O&Ms and trying to cast in that out to work with more people. Um, and on top of that, we found that um, there was a real niche for repowering. And it was uh, something that worked out really well for the business in terms of how we scale our staff and our locations. It turned out to be just the most logical choice. To us. So we really spent a lot of time focusing on, on repowering. Um, and what that meant to the clients, the uplifts, uh, and, and what we could get for it. And at a time that, again, we didn't realize that we always knew repairing was going to be a subject that would needed addressing over the next few years. I don't think we really thought it would be that quickly coming at us. And, and, it, and it really turned from one repairing project one year to four the next to, you know, I don't know how many they've got now, but plenty of repairing projects. But on top of that, you know, they, they, they're, they're HV experts. They really are like we've, when you're stuck on a solar farm and you can't find the answers, they are, they are the, last, the last chance to try and work it out. And if they don't know, then it is, it is something really, really bizarre. Um, and, and I think that's what always appealed to me about, about working with Liam and Dathan. I always knew whatever I could bring in as a business for them they would be able to deliver it. I think it was one of the most secure feelings I ever had as trying to sell something is that I didn't have to worry about particularly what that work was as long as it was, you know, financially, you know, worked for the business and and, and it, would, it would keep our guys busy. But yeah, they are phenomenally, phenomenally hardworking guys and they thoroughly deserve everything they've got with their business. And uh, it's not, it's certainly not testament to me. It's testament to how they look after their staff, how they treat people. And uh, yeah. Yeah, an absolutely diamond of a business, and and one what was a a very difficult decision to leave, and a, a, a very heart wrenching decision to leave because you know Liam, and Dave, and David, all those guys, and Michael included, they've, they've all they've all become friends of mine, and, um, and long will we be friends ever since. You know, um, yeah, they're, they're just generally really good guys, not just for the business, but you know, in their personal lives as well. It's it's really hard not to not to want to work for them and, and you know and, and like them as people. Absolutely. And the DES stands for Dynamic Energy Services, right? Solutions. Yeah. Solutions. Dynamic Energy Solutions. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, yeah. I find it very inspiring to meet Dathan at first then, uh, and talk yeah. about repowering and then uh, Liam uh, straight after because it was during uh, the lockdown period and people started to work from home and hardly ever seeing daylight. And you know, many people, uh, you know, they, they were cha- having facing a lot of uncertainty. You know, it, it was a crazy period because we had deliveries coming from from Switzerland and Turkey, and you know the trucks had to be stopped because they want to fumigate the trucks against COVID. It was it was a surreal time, and you know if you wanted to get someone to come out, you know people were scared or didn't want to come out. And so it was very inspiring to meet Dathan and Liam, and whatever you say to them, they will say, "Okay, we'll be there tomorrow morning." So, yeah, they they, <laughs> they they move mountains for their clients, and I yeah. think that's. Uh, it's just, it is quite impressive, where, you know, that, the, the way they 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 can get around and, and run their business in such a way. Like I say, it is inspiring. It was lovely to be in, and be part of it. Mm-hmm. Long way they continue. I genuinely mean that. And the drive is is motivating. But before we get into your period leaving, Des, you know, uh, uh, one of the goals of this podcast is. You know, because if you want to solve climate change, uh, you know, I'm starting to appreciate what it means, starting to mean now. I think we've had the hottest 2023 on record yeah. ever. You know, I, I'm probably not clever enough to truly understand climate science, but I'm starting to take notice that it is, it is very, very serious. Like in the Alps, sometimes you don't get snow, <laughs> enough snow for skiing, you know. So there are actual changes, but uh, some 
housekeeping uh, when you say repowering for new people that we want to motivate to enter the industry what do you mean by repowering how do you understand this I think with, from a marketing level, it, it's kind of re-engineering um, the, the solar farm. Essentially, it's almost a new solar farm. If you, if you were to, to uh, remove all the inverter stations um, and, and then replace them for new models, within the, the six years, 10 years they've been on site, you obviously equipment's come a long way from them, so obviously better yields. They also have better tracking on them, so you know better da- no less downtime for tracking strings. Um, so there's multiple reasons for doing it. Um, it's a, a financial financially you, you get the payback. Um, I can't remember what the full term is now, but it, it's pretty quickly. It's less than five years to get the payback or switch now um, and invert at this stage. But essentially, it's re-engineering the existing solar farm um, and uplifting it to to make sure it's not just re- hits the remaining of its life cycle. You get spare parts from the inverters that you're taking out for the existing uh, rest of the solar farm um, and and then you get um, the uplift from from that substation as well uh, as well so it, it's um, it's a process that we didn't expect um, maybe inverters to fail quite as quickly as we they did in the industry but it was a consideration in most people's models to to do a repower at some stage um, the other issue we had is is manufacturers you know, disappearing or pulling out of the market because it wasn't feasible to them. So they then got products that are outside of warranty and with no manufacturing support. So there's other factors to think about in terms of repowering is, you know, if I can't get the support from the inverter anyway, how am I going to get spare parts? So you have to strip a bank out to give you spare parts to your remaining site, um, as, as well as, as just making sure you've got longevity and, and further warranty going forward, a bit more protection. So there's lots of pros and cons on it. Uh, in fact, Dynamic Energy Solution done an amazing video on a, on on repowering. I suggest you go check it out if you haven't. I will do. I will do. And uh, we have uh, we are very fortunate in Switzerland that Studio Cables uh, um, AG, uh, formerly Leone, because we've got four hundred colleagues and we've got a massive R and D workforce. We have our own scientists because we run our own uh, irradiation center where we accelerate particles and. You know, these guys are XABB and 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 they're electronically very very uh, tr- trained and. You know, some of these colleagues uh, unfortunately retired, which has been a massive loss to us. But their the early objections from a nerdy point of view is like, how do you get the electronic components like capacitors and resistors to have an inverter that lasts the life of the solar farm? From from your point of view, is, are there intervals like five years or 10 years, 15 years when you should be replacing that inverters? I mean, it really depends on the technology. I mean, the, the one thing with it's probably too early to gauge is that we're not we're not fully aware of the longevity of the new new inverters. I think some of the older issues was technology probably not suitable for the environment. So there's there's lots of factors to consider before you can just put a finite number of five, ten years. But I think in terms of financial modeling, certainly you should you should look at doing a repower at ten years. Um, you know, and, and there may be some requirements to do it as, as early as five years. Um, I've certainly seen it on some folks, so the farms which are about five years old that we, we started repowering. So it really, we, it's hard to put a finite number on it, to be honest. We will do more technical podcasts in the future. I've done one already with Dr. Jyothi Roy, so it is, it is, and also with Arnold. It's an immense area because the technology is changing so rapidly. And uh, according to Dr. Roy, there is now uh, OEMs out there that make inverters specifically for repowering. So we won't go too much into that. We need a couple of hours yes. only on inverters otherwise. Uh, but, but winning uh, the O&M of the Year Award at DES, you know, how did that come about? Who, who, who said that these guys are award-worthy? 
I mean, me probably. I mean, that was probably most <laughs> my job is shouting about that. I mean, that was probably, if, if I'm honest, probably one of my strongest sell points. I know a lot of people in the industry, and I, I, I do like to shout about how good we were. And uh, and, and yeah, so that, I mean, yeah, there was an opportunity to to nominate, uh, you know, Dynamic Energy, and I just felt it was the right time. You know, I remember being stood at uh, solar and storage in one of the little one meter by one meter hubs trying to generate generate business the following year being there with our own proper you know proper exhibition stand and, and just growing and at the third year it just felt the right time to try and you know top an award it's like the dream isn't it like a startup business who was a it was in the startup zone is now winning, you know, O and M of the year. So I, I, I thought it, I thought it was an amazing, amazing end to to, to, to my time at Dare. So I'm really glad that, yeah, I could get that nomination in for them. And uh, yeah, I'm really, and again, no, the credit is really due, down to, to those guys. That, I mean, there was there was no embellishments in in my my nomination. It was true that they, they genuinely are liked and respected by their clients. They do excellent work. Um, yeah, so it is well deserved. Now I, I was I was very happy that they. Uh, they let me come on stage and uh, and collect that award with them because I'd I'd already jumped ship by that stage by the time we actually we won. So uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a nice it was a nice accolade to leave on. There's a Scottish comedian called Billy Connolly. You might know him already. I'd listened to a lot of audiobooks during the the lockdown, and I think his 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 book was the bestseller called Windswept and Interesting. And he says if 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 uh, people don't give you a medal, then invent your own. So <laughs> if if you do business development and you're pushing the business, of course. Let, let's yeah. go do this. But it was hard to keep up uh, on your LinkedIn feed. You know, I, I, I would sometimes, I admit, I delete LinkedIn just to not get addicted on constantly screen scrolling and tiring myself out. But I would, every time I reinstall the app or log in, there would be something that you guys are winning. So you won O&M of the year and then you went to some X-Forces event as well? Yeah, no. So that, yeah, that was a really surreal one. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, I got a, an email come through to say I'd been nominated for uh, an engineering award for uh, x-forces in business um which is a, isn't a great award ceremony run in, in london um and that was quite nice just to know i'd been nominated so that was you know that, that was the first kind of level into that and then and then yeah uh, leading up to to july I, was, I then got told i was shortlisted and and i'd have to attend so yeah i went to the swanky to the ballroom in, in london um and uh yeah sat there with with loads of doctorates and PhDs around this table shortlisted for an engineering and thinking this is never going to happen you know and I remember having a call with Dave and he was like in for a chance I was like no way it's nice to be nominated and I remember saying I'll get I'll take the pictures of the stage to to show dynamic energy you know on on the bit stage and that never in a million years thinking that I would win and then yeah and then suddenly my name was called out and uh yeah then the rest was a bit blurry I'm honest with you it's just uh it was a very surreal experience to be nominated in the first place and then take an award home, you know, for engineering, which, uh, yeah, probably a bit tongue in cheek, you know, I'm not sure how many times in my lifetime a screwdriver has actually been in my hand, but, you know, in terms of, of, of why I won it, it was, it was more around kind of being X forces in renewables. I mean, I have to tip my hat to renewables again. It, it, it's because of, I'd been working in renewables that, that, that supported that win. Um, but yeah, it was a really great experience and, and it, it's, it's, it, it's both really, humbling and 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 big-headed at the same time to uh to receive these things so um yeah it was a, it was a really nice experience because you can put yourself forward for an award but people have to vote for you and and you guys were existing in an industry with billion uh euro companies like biwa and you know it could be electrics also the year with now is very big and you guys are you know rubbing shoulders with massive organizations and 
and, and, and so people are voting for you. So it's a testament to you and to your team, uh, Dathan, Liam, David Williamson. But then you had this great chemistry and a great team and great potential. Suddenly you turn up at Be Electric. You know, how did you meet uh, Mr. Barry Benny? And do you want to tell oh. us a bit about that? Yeah, uh, so I, I've, I've known Barry for, for over 10 years. Um, yeah, I've worked with him at, previously at Lightsource uh, and then at another business we worked together. Um, and we've always stayed in contact regularly, met up every every year and we remain, remain quite close. So, um, yeah, um, that was kind of my relationship with Barry. And then, uh, yeah, Electric had had a lot of changes and, and, and I was asked if I would uh, go along and, and, and take a challenge of looking after and, and building on on the O&M team um so that was the start of that conversation and uh, and yeah like I said it was a it was a really hard decision at the time to to one have to leave Des who I did have a, a great job a great you know a, a, a great package with and and I had no no complaints genuinely had no complaints and you know they respected me and I respected them back so uh, it was really hard to make that call today from to say that I'm really sorry but I've been offered this and, and it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't financially led at this base. It, it was, to me, it was the opportunity to go work for what is now a global business um, and, and, and see if I could stand on my own two feet in, in a, you know, similar role, but, you know, probably more people and probably slightly more responsibility. So I saw it as a really big challenge and more importantly, it's an opportunity to, to join a really well-established business who is who is having this this amazing growth at the moment so again i just saw it as, a, as just a, a huge career opportunity that you know they don't come around all the time so when they they do you you, you try and grab them with both hands right absolutely and as you said earlier the, 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 uh, people say there's no moving parts and solar but it is a massive uh under construction undertaking you know and every country is different yeah. Uh, in the future, we will do um, episodes uh, on the Be Electric story in itself. You know, it was a key account for us, for my colleagues. We uh, because the UK gets so much rain, we have high ground water level. We developed a product, uh, water blocked main DC and LVAC cable, specifically with UK engineers and my colleagues in Switzerland, uh, Mr. Frugigensoy, Jan Wolfgang, went and sold it to Be Electric uh, for 350 megawatt Lymondale solar farm. Uh, and uh, so we we have a lot of background. Be electric. They were sold to RWE, and now I think they've they've got a new new owner. Yeah. But yeah. for people yeah. that are new uh, to, uh, to meeting you, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about Be Electric and about Barry specifically? What kind of business they are? What they do? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So Be Electric have been around for for over ten years in the UK. They're they're a global business. They're established in Germany, Norway, Denmark, France, Italy, uh, Africa, all around. So it's a, a very well established global business. Um, in the UK, it, it was uh, one of the original kind of EPCs, um, and they they as a business tended to have longer term O and M contracts built in as part of their EPC. So they they had a slight niche to the normal guys who were going out getting five year contracts and stuff. So, and they managed to to hold on to to their own projects for for, for quite some years, ten years, um, and never actively kind of looked for third party work. They never really they just looked after their own sites and and and, and became this this quite small kind of O and M business looking after their own their own their own built built sites for for, for asset owners, um, and then. Barry joined, uh, I think, six years ago, I believe. I have to check with him his numbers, but I believe it's about six years ago. Um, and then there was an opportunity to really change. Like I say, after the first couple of years of, of, of solar being stale, it, you know, the opportunity came available to them to, to build again. 
Um, so Barry's kind of, you know, marched forward with with, with, with Belletric, not just Barry, the, the, the whole senior team, you've got Chris Abel um, and Ruben Martin uh, and Gail. And Joe, who are all in the senior team pushing forward, but they're now really established as an EPC. Um, so they're building several projects in the UK as we speak. Um, and again, I won't go into the full details of those, but it then has, has broadened the market for us. So we as an OM team need to get bigger because we're going to have more megawatts coming in. But the more um, defined choice on top of that was Barry decided that they would finally approach the third party market. And start looking after after you know third party O and M projects. Um, so now um, that was that decision was made. I think the tail end of twenty two, um, and then they, they they started winning some projects um, with, with with you know the well known asset management company like No New But yeah, we, we, we've got some contracts there up to. Well, I think we're up to about four hundred megawatts around debt right now. Um, but the, the the real growing pain is coming now. Um, we, we, we'll be Hundred so megawatts at the end of the year, definitely, possibly pushing for a gigawatt um, with 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 other stuff we're tendering on at the moment. So we're at a, a, a stage of uh, growing pains uh, right now. Um, but yeah, Electric is this 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 business who has been around a long time, and and, and yeah, they've decided to probably go stand along with 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 the big guys, as such like Light Source and Res and and, and PSH, isn't it? And, and, and see if we can play our part in, in in the industry. I think there's enough in the market for everybody. There's enough work that um, you know we, we should, as businesses, be able to uh, sustain. You know, another another one of us in in the market, and and hopefully doing a good job. Absolutely, and you know, confidentiality is a big thing if you want to work in any any big business. Yeah. People have to be able to trust you. And and you know certain things have to stay uh, you know between the people that they're discussed with, and also you know uh, I want to speak a bit about EPCs. You know it's like this that's where all the action seems to be in terms of responsibility, in terms of the engineering, in terms of the maintenance, and you know there there is a lot of companies that get roped into being EPCs and they haven't got the capacity and and they do struggle. But Be Electric yeah. has a very important brand name. You have a, a very interesting chemistry with your colleagues in in Germany and, and, and other countries. We agreed yeah. before this call, we won't mention specific precise numbers to protect commercial, commercially sensitive information. But in terms of growth, in terms of employees, are you able to give us an idea about the UK team? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the easiest one with, 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 without definitive numbers is, is the beginning of 2023. There was, there was less than 20 people working for Belletric UK. Um, and to this date, there is over 70, and that's an ever-growing number. And I think the target is to be around 120 by by summer of this year. So you can imagine that's that's created its own tasks um, on it on its own. But it, it it is a massive a massive period of growth for Belletric, the biggest we've seen in the UK. Belletric UK definitely. And uh, you are head of O and M. Uh, are you yeah. able to give us a, an idea of your day to day role? What sort of things you get involved with? That be electric. Well, I try and plan my days, but they uh, they're always <laughs> scuffered because that is O and M for you. That is the nature of O and M. You have to run when, when when something goes wrong. You have to respond, right? What what I love about O and M is that there is no two two days the same. You know, every day is is different. There's always something. Before I, I joined this call, that we have some stray dogs on a site. We've never dealt with that before, but there you go. It's it's an interesting. I've had horses before, but never dogs. So that like, every day is different, and 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 I do love that. I love the fact that um, from an O and M point of view, I still get to have an engineering mind and a commercial box. So my day to day really is looking after. Um, 
I have three managers on me. I have, have David, Maribel, and Dom underneath me, um, and they look after various teams. So I have a, a portfolio management team and monitoring team who's looked after by one manager. I then have a uh, the health and safety and project teams, and then I have the, the full-on O&M and HB teams. So that we've, we're split across the board. Um, we try and do as much as we can in-house as an O&M. I think it's one of our, our bits that all of our engineers, in terms of our, our training going forward, will all, we'll all have you know the, the right levels for the right site and stuff so so yeah it's um it's definitely been quite painful <laughs> and i've got notes to saying um you have plans to reach a gigawatt by the end of 2024 and, and expanding your team according to that what is this a gigawatt in epc gigawatt in o&m what do you mean exactly so i think uh, i think that that yeah so uh, i i mean i think the the world's the limit, really, in terms of what we'll reach for at the moment. I don't know what the full EP scale is. I don't know those numbers right now. But in terms of of the M and M, yeah, we're 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 not necessarily targeting it, but I think, yeah, I think it, it's 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 reasonable to expect us to be in or around that by the end of the year, just with the projects we already, you know, are, are building and phasing and, and and the tenders that we already know we're involved in. I mean, we're pushing the market slightly now because we're we're looking at. Best projects and co-locations, so another integrity to, to to add, or another complexity, sorry, to add to the to the mix. But um, yeah, it, 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 we've got to grow accordingly, and obviously that comes with its own issues, as you know. The, the technical resources in the UK is pretty low right now, and uh, we're in a bit of a an auction for engineers. So it, it, it is it is tough to try and try and grow your team, make sure you train them correctly, you know, and ethically. Um, not not in a stage where they, they you know just train them and, and, and they're gone straight away so there is this real balance within my job of, of making sure again going back to my early agriculture days of it's not just the work we're managing it's the people as well so yeah but electric have got a really good good team below them um and they've always had a, a good name and the real drive over the last last year is is it is fundamental to people like Alistair and Barry who, who who run the business. So, so yeah, it's going to be it's going to be both interesting headaches and uh, and tantrums throughout the year. But um, that is the world of O and M. It is an ever moving beast. There's always faults. There's always issues. And there's always something going wrong. And with the current climate crisis, as as, as we see, you were seeing wetter weathers, which is more trips for us. It's more call outs. We're seeing more wind. We're seeing, we're seeing, you know, more challenges as, as we get from year from year. And that's a, not including the aging equipment or, or all the other issues that we've got. So it's a really demanding role, um, but it's fully enjoyable. I must admit, like I say, it's, uh, it's every day is different. And, uh, but I really like working with with across all, all boards. I like being um, involved with the client management team and, and being being part of that and, and seeing how we're adapting that. We've had to putting a lot of systems into place because obviously with growth, you know, with twenty people, you can talk amongst yourself and do most of your business on email and Excel. Um, so you know, one of my my, my fundamentals for the for the next twelve months is, is building out on the. Uh, on the system that we put in place to, to manage the engineers and schedule their work and reporting, um, you know, I've then got to look at, you know, building, you know, commercial dashboards for, for, for clients and stuff like that. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm involved in a, in a broad spectrum across, across the O&M business. Um, but yeah, it's where I like to be. It's a bit of everything and, and, and yeah, it's very interesting. What I want to ask you is, you know, to to hit your um, ambitious growth plans uh, in in a market of labour shortages, uh, you know, um, you need to attract good people. Yeah. And, and so, uh, in terms of 
the sort of people you want, you want to work with? Uh, are you able to give us an idea about that? And can you share specifically uh, what processes and procedures you're implementing to to attract and train and retain good people to hit your gigawatt plus target? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a really 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 tough sub- subject of almost with Vikram. But I mean, internally. What we're trying to do is, is is reduce traveling time for engineers, more regionalization, um, and uh, less less sites and less megawatts to look at per engineer. Obviously, there is a fine balance to what you can pay your engineers compared to, to your, your your market competition. So, so we're trying to recruit at the higher level, um, really solid industrial experts uh, in solar. So the the real finite PV HV experts, those kind of people, we're looking to. To cement those into our business um, within the regionalization of the teams. Um, we're looking to grow the teams further. Unfortunately, like you say, it's hard to even convince someone to come from uh, house bashing or from a domestic market into standing in the middle of the field. So I think I have a slightly different approach to it. So I think there's probably for us and our focus again for the training team is is to bring in novices and try and cross train people from other industries. And I have to look at myself. I came from another industry 10 years ago. And um, if I can do it, I'm pretty sure anyone else can. So I think it's it's thinking outside the box. We can't we can't just keep looking with inside our own market now because we know it's saturated already we've already got all the engineers so i think it's about bringing in the right mentality the right people um to, to do the jobs out late and i'd like to see us in a world where um there's probably modulized training within the industry so we know that whatever we call them a, a, a you know a general engineer can do xyz job a hv can do these and then it should help the, the workforce balance out i don't know if there's a full requirement for a PV engineer, every PV engineer that is to be an electrician. I think there is there is some some unique things we can do around it uh, to reduce the workload. And we're also going to look at sort of the future of, of innovation, right? And, and and what we're going to do to to reduce time on site and how we can use better monitoring uh, and technology to support us, you know, delivering a, a, a more robust product to the client. Well, the unfortunate reality we have is because of COVID, you know, like like yourself, you're quite young, but people have taken the stock of their careers, their lives, and, you know, we've had a massive yeah. workforce disappear. We've had, obviously, Brexit as well. And, uh, and, and because of that, there is a natural labor shortage across all sectors, not only solar, but solar itself is very, very exciting because the energy yeah. is, uh, has just started. It's, it's about a terawatt within the 75 terawatt goals that we, we may have worldwide. And already it's the, one of the most efficient and the lowest cost ways of generating energy. Uh, so there is that vision we can uh, sell to uh, young people or, or, or mature people that want to enter the industry. And as we come towards the end of our podcast, the most important question I want to I ask you is, you know, what is your vision and what, what do you see as the future of solar photovoltaics? I think I think for me I think we, we, we have to look at a more balanced world I think there is definitely um, a call for the government to be more relaxed around solar I don't know if we're in a world where we need 
funding so much anymore. I think we've proven that we're an industry who can stand on our own feet, but I think they certainly need to look at relaxing the rules a bit more around it. Um, there's a lot of bad press around solar, especially around uh, agricultural land usage, as, as we all know, and I'm sure you'll you'll speak to someone in the future about those kind of things. But there's a lot of government support that they can do, which isn't financial, that I believe should change. So I'd like to see that on the horizon. I'd like to see a more direct route for for people wanting to get into the industry. It, it is a hard industry to get into, although we're crying out for people. It, it's one of the, those strange anomalies that I find once you hire someone that most of them are like, I've been trying to get into the industry for a year or two years, and then we wonder why. <laughs> we just we can't get in. So we need to have this more direct, obvious route in. I don't know how we, we, we get that right now. I know there's this, again, John Davies and other people in the industry thinking about these things. So I see a world where we have that more direct route and a more obvious um, uh, chain of getting into to the industry. Um, more importantly, I, I think we need to be at a stage where, you know, as a as a country, we need to start harnessing our own power. And I think that that is, to a certain degree, when, when it's affordable, it should be at our own homes to a certain degree. And I think there should be, I know the government is supporting doing heat pumps, um, but I mean, there is an element of, of putting solar on your own roof is quite empowering outside of it being financially rewarding over time. Um, it's quite empowering to know that you've got your own power. So I think there should be this mindset change as well to, you know, every house probably should consider where practical to have solar and, and battery storage to try and help balance that grid out a bit more because it's um it's going to get worse, you know, and more imbalanced as we start putting more 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 grid and more items onto the grid. And, and we're already seeing that in, in, in delays in the grid. So, and again, I could talk all day on, on the issues around that. But um, yeah, I, I see a future where it's a bit easier, a bit clearer uh, uh, of where we're going. So, and I think it is happening. I think we are getting there. Uh, and without talking full politics, I think the change is, is afoot now. Well, I've spent so much time in solar that, you know, I ask this question myself all the time. I've been asking it for the last, you know, over 15 years. You know, what is the future of solar photovoltaics? What is my own future? You know, are we destroying agricultural land? Are we doing something unethical? These are things you ask yourself because a moral argument is what you need to have to to grow a big team, to, to have people following you. Solar, by all means, is not a magic bullet because it doesn't work in the night time. It does cause grid intermittency. Yeah. It doesn't work in, in the winter as well but every kilowatt hour solar we generate in the summer or when there's daylight you know there's less gas that needs to be burned and specifically if, if, if you care about the environment you look around you you know i've researched a lot about agricultural land and, and food use and we are destroying our environment with fertilizer with killing bees we're chopping down forests and for what uh, you know and then this is on the uh, wwf it's the animal charity it's th these are proven research you know evidence papers they they say on the you know most of the land we use in the uk is for growing food for animals which is actually destroying the environment and you know when you take all the nutrients out of the soil it's dead it's finished and so if we put solar somewhere where you know like york solar farm is a pig farm you know it can't be used for agriculture anymore if you install solar that you allow the for crop rotation you allow the land to to recover so th that that land argument doesn't wash anymore of course you have to be ethical and not put solar where people have lovely views out of the window you know you have to listen to people and take them forward with you but i've certainly enjoyed uh, this conversation and i've found from previous podcasts when you listen again you, you realize there are bits that you miss so I, I will think deeply about the things you've said and 
and um, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It generally has been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks, bro. Cheers. Cheers.